Welcome to Preble Hall. My name is John Sherwood, and I have the deck and the con for this episode. Today, I have the great honor of hosting British Admiral Sir Ian Forbes. Sir Ian Forbes is a 1969 graduate of the Britannia Royal Naval College in Dartmouth. During his 38 years of service with the Royal Navy, Sir Ian has commanded at every level in the Royal Navy, including the carrier HMS Invincible, the UK Maritime Battle Group, and NATO's Supreme Command in Norfolk, Virginia. In his last appointment, he was responsible for establishing the Supreme Allied Command transformation. He was involved in conflict and crisis operations off of Iceland, in the Falklands War, off Kosovo, and in the Arabian Gulf. Admiral Surian Forbes, welcome to Preble Hall. John, thank you very much, and very nice to be with you. I hope I can uh, give people something that's interesting. Since this is a Naval Academy-based podcast, can you tell us about your time at the Britannia Royal Naval College in Dartmouth? How does this school compare to the Naval, the U.S. Naval Academy? Is the curriculum sim- similar? What type of academic degrees are conferred? Is there a similar emphasis on sport? Can you comment on the, the special role that Naval ca- Academies play in producing officer material for navies? Okay, John. Well, um, I think it's probably best just to give a little bit of a context for the British um, Royal Naval College, Britannia Royal Naval College, Dartmouth. It was... Um, <clears throat> We trained our officers from about 1860, always at Dartmouth, um, originally in a couple of hulks, um, and then they built the college in 1905, and um, we've been training our officers there since then and do so to this day. Um, It's in Dartmouth, um, high on a hill, a very imposing building, uh, looking down on the River Dart that has a number of boats in it, small boats. It's also a big yachting marina. And we used to do lots of boat work on the river every afternoon. So the first impression you get of it when you look at it is that, wow, that is the um, leader of a, of a real organization and institution. And it is. Um, when you first arrive, it does have that impression. You're looking at a lot of history. You're looking at a lot of statement. Um, so it does have a lot of impact. Um, and the curriculum, you spend four years there. I joined in 1965. And as you say, qualified four years later, um, that first year is uh, three terms, two terms of which are at the college. Uh, one term was away on uh, ships of the Dartmouth Training Squadron, frigates living like a sailor. Uh, and really that first year is to introduce you to the Navy, to discipline. Uh, and you're a growing individual, of course. Um, and it's for you to determine whether you want to, want to go ahead with it or not. The second year, you go to sea in the fleet as a midshipman. You spend you spend uh, time doing looking across the departments of the ship. I went to a frigate in Singapore, so I was very fortunate. Um, I can remember the long flight out in an old Britannia aircraft, stopping at Bahrain to grab some fuel. So it was all a very exciting uh, year, and we came back to UK halfway through it. And then year three is what I would say higher-level thinking. You're looking at higher defence and all that goes with it, um, quite academic. And then year four, you leave the college for perhaps the last time and go out to all the institutions around the UK where the Navy is based or training or located. So you you get a full four-year exposure at the end of which you come to the top of the hoist and you join the fleet. I would say that it's rigorous, fairly tough. Um, You do a lot of boat work on the river every afternoon, um, they're turning you from someone rather wet behind the ears, excuse the pun, into someone who's going to step into the fleet as an officer. And there's a lot, there's a lot to that. Um, you are exposed, I think, to all aspects uh, of the Navy. I'll give you one slight amusing aspect. We used to do a course called the Junior Officers Air Course, where you all went to uh, Yeovilton and you went up in a jet, um, a double-seater, And, of course, you listened to all the ejection seat uh, paraphernalia and fitted it and felt uncomfortable and didn't for one minute think you were going to have to use it. 
Well, we did have one chap in our year who used it and had to bail out and eject. I think he, I think he got over it. Um, but I've never forgotten his name, and I don't think the rest of my year has either. His name was Oz Barwood, and he was he was an Australian. But he he sticks in the memory for just that uh, that singularity. There was an emphasis on sport. I obviously ran teams into other colleges around the Dartmouth area. But the major emphasis in terms of outdoor activity was the river, where you had to do a series of tests of boat work um, on power craft, on sailing craft, on slightly larger craft, um, before you went out into the fleet. Um, what's the model like? Um, and and how, do, how is it delivered? Uh, there's a rather famous book, it's, 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 it's long in the tooth now, called We Joined the Navy by John Winton. And I remember one piece in it where he says, um, ah, they built this college um, so that when they excavate it um, about sort of in 10 centuries time, they'll look at it and say, ah, oh, this must be where they trained their naval officers. And it's always stayed in the memory. I think the machine delivers, um, and it has delivered um, down the centuries, in our case, um, a lot of history. Um, it, it's no frills, really. It knows exactly what it needs to do, and it does it. Um, and once you get to the top of the top of the tree, as I was very fortunate to do, you do look back and you do think, "Wow, how how did I get here? And and how did I have the skills to do this and that?" And they're very varied in the Navy, as we all know. Um, you can start at the beginning. Very sort of ephemeral stuff, and then by the by the end, you're you're dealing with politics and diplomacy and organisations like NATO, etc. And I think I reflect on that, and I reflect that the the training is first rate, really, and it delivers what it needs to deliver. Um, an individual who can go to a ship can end up commanding a ship, understands how to fight a ship, and if he needs to, has the grit and uh, determination to do it. How large is the school? How many students, or naval cadets, or midshipmen? Well, we used to have quite a large number. I mean, uh, in my day, I think I'm pulling it off the top of my head. I would think we were in the 600 region, uh, 500, 600. We had sub-lieutenants there. We had foreigners there. Um, uh, we had um, cadets coming through. Um, that has reduced as the scale of the Navy has reduced. And mm. we've managed to keep Dartmouth open for all the reasons you know. Um, it's it's, it's um, very symbolic um, training, really. Uh, if you went somewhere else, it wouldn't have that same sort of sense, that same depth of history. So I would say we're probably sitting on about 400 now. Your, one of your first assignments out of Dartmouth was the HMS Whitby, a Type 12 anti-submarine frigate. In 1973, the HMS Whitby participated in the Second Cod War in Iceland. The Cod Wars were a series of conflicts between the UK and Iceland that occurred between 1958 and 1976 over fishing rights and differing definitions of the EEZ, Exclusive Economic Zone. What was your role on Whitby? And tell us about your experiences in the Second Cod War. Well, Whitby, Whitby was a relatively elderly frigate by the time I got to her. She was probably about sort of 15 to 20 years old. Type 12, very much a workhorse of the fleet. A very basic gun, um, anti-submarine warp mortar, steam turbine, etc. Very durable, very resilient and very reliable. Um, I joined Whitby as the navigating officer, so I was about uh, 29, 30 years old. I'd done a navigating course I'd had a previous two navigating jobs, in fact, one in America on the William H. Stanley, and I thoroughly enjoyed that, and the other on the Royal Yacht Britannia, where I was the N2 and did an awful lot of what I would call the astro work. But Whitby, I was a navigator. We had uh, been running. I'd been um, the navigator for about six to eight months by the time the uh, Cod Wars came around for us, and we were dispatched up there. So I was responsible for all those things that a navigator is responsible for, you know, bridge work bridge watch keeping, navigation, advisor to the command on the ship handling, etc. Um, so that was my role, and that was the ship. And tell us a bit about your deployment to Iceland during the Second Cod War. What was your mission? Well, <laughs> it's, uh, 
probably a contradiction in terms, uh, quote the word cod and quote the word wars. I mean, you used <laughs> conflict earlier. Um, this wasn't a conflict and it wasn't a war. I mean, it's been labelled as such. But it was a series of episodes and events where um, Iceland and the UK disagreed over fishing rights. And it has been going on for many years. You know, a couple of centuries back, we'd fished up there. They didn't necessarily enjoy us fishing up there all the time. Um, and and it, it came to a head. I think I would say that the, for the Icelandics, I don't know if you've been to Iceland, but it's relatively small, less than 400,000 people. And, and fishing is, is very much, um, you know, the font of life. I mean, it's terribly important to them, to their economy, to their livelihood, to their future, to their environment. And uh, for them, this was a, a, a make-or-break make disagreement by the time we got to this stage. They'd arbitrarily extended their limits. And, of course, we used to have some deep-sea deep fishermen running out of East Coast ports, such as Hull and Grimsby, who'd been doing it for decades. And so they... They knew the Icelandic waters inside out, and that was their livelihood as well. So, but we did, we did have, I think, room for manoeuvre, uh, and we showed it in all three cod wars. The quotes will tell you that the Icelandics won. Well, there was no winning or losing, but we certainly did give quite a lot on, uh, on the various agreements that came out at the end. And I think that was largely because there was, there was, no, there was no alternative for the Icelandics, but there was alternatives for us. Um, and so that's why we ended up. Now, the mission. Um, on this particular occasion, um, and, the, and remember, the Icelandics have no military forces, no standing military forces. Um, but they do have a very proficient coast guard for obvious reasons. They live in a hospital, inhospitable part of the world. Um, they had about four or five um, patrol craft, um, very durable um, indeed, um, uh, strengthened. Uh, strengthened bows, um, strengthened hulls, um, quite high speed, a lot of acceleration, highly maneuverable, and they knew their business. And they started, um, in this particular instance, riding off our trawlers who were up there and uh, using, using cutters to cut their nets. Now, it doesn't sound much, but if you have a net out the back uh, as a trawler and you're into the deep sea game with all the sort of complexity of it, Having your net cut, apart from the fact that it sort of ruins your, ruins your time up there and, and, and that can take you two and three months, um, but it also means you lose your rig and your rig is worth uh, quite a lot of money. So it was very serious for the Brits. And the government decided to try and help the Brits out while the negotiations were underway. And we were sent up there to um, protect the, tra the trawlers from being interfered with. Um, you know, stopping, stopping short of obviously military force. Um, now, we were at a distinct disadvantage. I, we, we had bigger ships, obviously, and, uh, and more capable ships with armament. But the Coast Guard uh, cutters were, as I said, highly maneuverable, strengthened, knew their business, and knew their ground. Um, we, of course, had, a, I think, probably about two to three figures at a time. Um, it was quite a large sea area. Um, we didn't have control of the, uh, the trawler men. Uh, uh, and so keeping a tab on exactly where they were was quite difficult. Um, whereas the Iceland, the Iceland personnel were able to come out at fairly high speed, um, intercept a trawler or a trawler fleet, start cutting. And it was only then that we got the warning. And if we weren't fortuitously sort of co-located at that particular time, we were always going to be behind the curve and we would go at 20, 24, 25 knots all the steam turbine can give you to get to get there to stop the cutting and ride the uh, ride the coast guard colours off. Um, they were very proficient at what they did. They were very proficient at um, um, going into very close quarter engagement with us without touching. Um, uh, you know, that's 20 knots heading north or something to try and stop their cutters being effective. And, and you are feet apart and they knew exactly what they were doing. We never got rammed. Ramming was off the agenda. Um, but at a certain point, you know, they would simply ease their way in and we would have a collision. And during that collision, we would, we would suffer more than they would. So we took a fair amount of damage. We were, we were hit finally by a ship called, a, by a patrol craft called the Thor. And we had to make our way back to Rosyth, um, to get repaired. Um, there was no use of military force at all. Um, I give you a little story. Of course, 
uh, as this as this developed, uh, some ships coming up used their initiative, and one particular ship managed to acquire some railway sleepers. That's the sort of metal bit from uh, the Rosyth Naval Base. I don't know where he got them from. And under their own uh, auspices, they had them fitted, so they were rather like a porcupine. Mm. Um, and <laughs> this this certainly put some of the uh, cutters off from attempting to get into a close quarter situation. But, of course, it rather spooked the authorities when they heard about it. And we ended up with what I would call rather rudimentary rules of engagement. And I don't think any of us had dealt with rules of engagement at that particular time. This was very much still a still a, a, um, a navy that had operated across the globe, but rules of engagement was not something that was in our was in our paper book. And um, so that that was a newness. So it was a it was a lively um, it was a lively interchange. Um, we took damage, uh, and I think after about six to eight weeks, there was an agreement, and and that was the end of it. Um, and since then, of course, we withdrew from their deep sea, deep sea, our offshore fishing areas where they had engagement. And the agreement ran something like that they would continue to have a 200-mile zone and we could fish in it, but only with their agreement. So, you know, um, uh, their, their cause was felt to be just uh, within, the, within the international context. I have one other story which um, the experience is up there, and it's to do with ICE. Um, our navies, I can't speak for, for the United States Navy, but certainly for the Royal Navy, uh, doesn't historically do a lot of work in ice. I mean, we had you know, Captain Cook years ago, but um, the current Navy tends to have operating areas that are away from, from ice-related, uh, ice-related parts. Uh, but up there, of course, you're very close to the ice edge. And I do remember coming, um, coming on watch. Um, at about four o'clock in the morning once and all was well we were on a, in a northern sector um it was cold obviously and uh and i remember i couldn't we couldn't open the bridge door um and there was nothing particularly untoward about that but it was just quite surprising so i managed to get hold of a torch and you know bridges are very dark at night where well, we lit up and we saw that the entire bridge windows were absolutely covered with thick ice mm. and the other indicator was you could start to feel that the ship was you know just a little bit wobbly. Um, it wasn't it wasn't riding the sea in exactly the right way. Um, we got the door open and we were absolutely covered with ice with head to foot. And of course the ship's stability was starting to be affected. So we literally did um, you know try hard to cross the sea. That was quite lively, and then start coming south to lower the temperature whilst getting the ship's company out of bed, um, arming them with lots of chipping hammers that we had been we'd been given and chipping away the ice much. Much as they must much must have done in I don't know the early 19th century, but what it what it says to you is if you if you're going to an ice area, be very sure you know what you're doing. And of course, this came back to uh, to re-educate it a second time when we went down to the Falklands in 81, 82, uh, because ice there was very much uh, part part of the environment. And I think that's probably it, uh, John. So let's turn now to the Falklands War. You joined. HMS Glamorgan, which is a destroyer, as the senior warfare officer and anti-air warfare officer in 1980. Uh, Before we get into the Falklands, can you tell us a bit about your ship and your specific role on it? Yeah. um, Glamorgan was a county-class guided missile destroyer. Um, we built a class of these, probably around about eight to ten strong. They were a first-generation guided missile destroyer, and they had our first attempt um, at a missile system that could take aircraft out from attacking the ship. Um, it was a complex system. The missiles were about the size of a London bus. It was a beam rider, if that makes any sense to anybody. And we had about 30-plus missiles stored going up the center of the ship. Uh, so that was the modus operandi. She was probably, I think, about 6,000 tons. Um, we had about um, 350, 400, a Wessex helicopter on the back, a 4.5 gun, and she was also fitted with four Exocet, um, the ones that we used, which were surface-to-surface seaborne Exocet, unlike, unlike the air launch ones that uh, we subsequently encountered with, with the Argentinians. Um, we, had, we had been out in the Gulf, um, the, the, the 
autumn before, um, and we'd been out there with Sandy Woodward um, when he was um, still learning his craft as an admiral. Um, unfortunately, we'd gone aground. We won't, won't go into that too much detail, and we had to we had to come back um, and to get repaired um, because we were full with that, full of ammunition, and we couldn't find a dock that was prepared to take us. Um, and we came back and repaired, and then after Christmas, of course, the Falklands sort of thing blew up, and we found ourselves fully engaged with it. But no, she was a good ship. Um, we were very worked up. We'd done all the right things, having come out from that repair, and um, we found ourselves off Gibraltar in uh, in April of '82, and that's where it all began. On board, I was the anti-air warfare officer and the ops officer. We had a warfare team. Um, qualified what we call principal warfare officers is a year-long course that teaches you how to fight a modern warship. Um, I'd done all that. I'd done a second course to qualify me in air defense and running the slug um, system and also running the air war if needs be. Um, I'd been on there, as I say, for about six months. Four-ring captain in command, uh, a senior command um, with layers of uh, commanders at the at the departmental head level. So um, a big and capable ship for us, and one with a command and control, a communications fit, that allowed it to act as a flagship to an admiral if needs be. Why wasn't the Hermes, which was an aircraft carrier, the flagship, as opposed to your your ship? Your ship was the flagship. In In the US Navy, it's usually the carrier that's the flagship. Yeah, it's a good question. We um, were deployed in the Gulf, uh, as I say, just before the Christmas. And in the Gulf, we had the facilities to take Woodward. We didn't have a carrier available. We only had two of those, as you you know. Well, then at that stage, we only had a couple. Um, so he did his business on us as a, a flagship. We had the kit. And, of course, he got to know the team. When we came back or came out after the repair and went down to Gibraltar, um, he came and joined us in Gibraltar because it was a fleet arrangement, and we didn't have a we didn't have a carrier with us. They were back in the UK. So when this all blew up, um, it was immediately decided that we would head south in a, with a group of destroyers and frigates. There were six of us, um, and then we would pause at Ascension Island, uh, which would would have constituted half the way, whilst uh, the crisis sorted itself out and. The politicians back in the UK and also in the US, Cal Hague, etc., determined what to be done. And in that interregnum, of course, we had a we got a very hard line from Margaret Thatcher. Um, within the space of a week, uh, she had had the debate in the House of Commons to say that we were we were going to take the islands back, and we would be sailing a task force on the Tuesday. Um, this had all sort of um, arrived uh, the week before only. And on that Tuesday, the um, I think it was a Tuesday, the, the Hermes and the Invincible sailed from Portsmouth. Um, and then they came and caught us up in Ascension. And when, so it was a, a, a sort of matter of a uh, force majeure, really. Woodward took what he could to get down to Ascension and, of course, start to build the picture and everything else that he was doing, bringing his staff together. And his flagship, Hermes, and it was Hermes, uh, didn't catch us up for about two and a half to three weeks. Um, by which stage, you know, at that stage, he went, the moment uh, she was within range, he took his staff and himself and put himself for the rest of the deployment in the war onto Hermes, who acted as a flagship. Tell me about the speech that Woodward gave to your sailors on the transit, the long transit down to the Falklands. You had conveyed this story okay. in, a, in, a, in a separate conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things I think, you know, I learned from it, and we all learned from it, was that if you are going, if you are going to war and you're transitioning to war, um, for a very short period, you know, it's human nature to think, oh, well, it's not going to happen. And for a very short period, you think, oh, the peace process is going to be fine and we'll turn around and, you know, we'll go back. Um, but you need to, fairly shortly after that very short period, um, get your mind thinking about going to war and all that goes with it. And that hits different people subject to their different responsibilities. Now, as we were heading south, <coughs> after um, the good admiral had, had gone to Hermes, um, our captain asked him to come across and talk to our, our chief petty officers and petty officers about and they were a good team, good bunch. 
um, to talk to them about, you know, what might or might not happen. He came across and went to the what we call senior rates mess deck where they live um, uh, and gave them an address. And he opened it with the lines. I mean, he was a very black and white man, certainly Woodward. He, uh, he didn't beat around the bush. He opened and said, well, I'm not going to say very much. All I, I would say is that we're heading south and, you know, you need to prepare yourselves for war because that's likely to happen. At which point he said, I'll pause for questions because, you know, I, I really don't want to deviate from that way of thinking. Well, all the questions, understandably, were about um, when are we going round, turning round, when is the peace process going to complete, um, how long before we get home, etc. And they went on for, I suppose, about because he took a group of them, um, one group and said, stop, I don't, I don't need any more questions on these sort of lines because that for me... Is A, counterproductive, and B, it's the unknown. All I would say to you is that we are heading south. I would give you a 75-25 chance that um, we will go to war, looking at the situation as I'm seeing it now. So my advice to you is to prepare for war. Um, uh, undoubtedly, uh, if we do go to war, and I've told you it's a 75-25 chance, undoubtedly, some of us, some of you maybe, will get killed. So if you haven't, um, got this uh, cleared with your families, if you haven't written your wills, for instance, then I recommend you do so. Um, uh, there was a pause. Um, you could almost hear all the chins dropping. And he said, any more questions than there were. And we left. And as we left, we walked up the main passageway. And the captain and Sandy Woodward got on very well. Uh, I was just accompanying, really. And um, our captain turned to him with a sort of, you know, ironical uh, glint in his eye and said, well, well, Admiral, thank you very much uh, for the morale booster. And, um, well, as you can imagine, it, it grew a smile from Sandy, Sandy Woodward. Your ship arrived in the Falklands on 1 May, that same day while leading a naval gunfire group inshore. She was attacked by a group of Mirage and Skyhawk aircraft, Argentinian, which dropped 500-pound bombs, just missing the ship's stern. Tell us about that first day of, of combat. Was the ship prepared for an air attack that day? What naval gunfire targets did your ship strike? And can you discuss the differences between your 4.5-inch guns and our 5-inch guns? Okay, well, well as, as you can imagine, um, as this moment got closer, um, Tension increased. Tension increased within the task force, obviously. Um, uh, we'd gone through our drills. We thought we were ready. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the initial configuration of the group was that Woodward wanted to um, get a naval gunfire support in to start shelling Stanley, and well, not Stanley, the, the town, but Stanley Airfield as soon as possible, largely because we didn't want that to have access to the Argentinians again because it would have given them a, a very good springboard towards the task group. So he sent three ships in, a gun and naval gun fire support ships, uh, two what we call Type 21s, um, uh, and, and Glamorgan was leading the group. And we were sent in to Stanley, and so we did that. He kept the carriers back. He kept them deep. Um, he always kept them deep because he'd learned a very big lesson in the Gulf and the American carrier. Um, but he kept them deep with their es escorts, he had um, one group of escorts out front, uh, at the front of the screen. And he also sent some helicopters down because we had some intelligence that there was a 209 submarine possibly off the entrance to somewhere in Stanley. So he sent some helos down with one ship, I think, which was what we call Mortar Mark 10 fitted. These were depth bombs um, that came out of a mortar, a projectile. Uh, the helicopters were fitted with them, and they went to an area of probability and started to hit it hard. I'm not sure we ever got any validation that there was anything there other than sniffed in the wind after the event. I mean, you know, they, they were part of the orbit, but if they had been there, they'd have had a very uncomfortable time. We got onto the gun line. Our targets would have been related to the airfield and the airport. Um, and we we were just about to sort of line up to do our opening salvos when we started getting indications of the first Argentine response We'd send some Harriers in also over Stanley to have a go at Stanley Airfield. 
and there was a there was a, um, a number of contacts coming from the west heading across the land. Uh, we obviously lost them over land, and four of them bounced us off the coast. They came out of nowhere. They had about I suppose we were around about three miles, four miles off the coast. So they had a very quick run, and I believe there were two Mirage and two Skyhawks with 500-pounders um, to a to a piece. Um, were we ready? Uh, you're never ready in the first the first engagement you have of your life, to be quite honest. Your ship is ready. You've done all the drills. You've done all the training. But then suddenly, I, I'll give you one small example. I mean, when you're peacetime, I'm sure you're the same in the United States Navy. If you want to fire any audience, you have to go through a clearance process, you know. Clear visual, clear blind, turret correct, command approved, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, and that all takes time, and that's a sort of peacetime regulation. Well, here we were for the very first time. No one was going to go through that. We were just going to fire the weapons. Um, and so that's quite a shift for us all to get used to. I think these bounced us. I mean, we were trying to sort of, you know, lock on, get, the, get them into the system. We didn't get anything away other than a sea slug, but it was on a retreating target. So unless the slug was going a damn sight fast in Mirage, we were never going to get anywhere. We were very lucky. Um, we, we had either side um, uh, 500-pounders uh, just adjacent to the flight deck. It lifted us out of the water, and I had to say, I thought at the time, my God, that's, that's going to be a lot of damage. Damage we just prepared, by the way. Um, but we were all right. We settled, and that was fine. The other 221, they had a weapon suite that was a little bit quicker than ours, and they managed to get away some, some arms against the incoming aircraft. I think our assessment was that they were as nervous as we were. We were, were we ready? Yeah, we thought we were, but you're not ready until it's happened to you. And they were the same because, you know, they dropped their bombs, you know, in, we were sitting ducks and they dropped their bombs and missed. So they either were too low, too high, or they got something wrong. But it was a very good um, blooding, if that's the right word, probably a hunting word or something, but a very good blooding that gets your mind racing and makes you start thinking that uh, this is this is for real and we better, we better, we better get things right because if we don't, we're going to suffer. What weapons were fired at those aircraft? Well, we got a slug away. Um, I think probably we fired some 20 mil. We didn't get a CCAT away. The Type 21s, I think, managed to get 20 mil away, and they might have got one CCAT away. They weren't sea slug fitted. Um, in fact, <laughs> looking back, these guys came off the coast six miles low, I'm not sure our weapon system, and that was probably the problem, I'm not sure our weapon system even had it within the arc to engage them. You know, As I said, this was a Generation 1 air defense system. It was optimized for a certain set of heights, a certain set of speeds, and Mirage and Sighthorse going flat out and very low wouldn't, I think, have been within the envelope. In a unique moment in history, the Royal Navy submarine HMS Conqueror sunk the Belgrano on 30 April, resulting in the loss of 320 Argentinian sailors. Two days later, an Argentinian naval aircraft hit HMS Sheffield with an exocet, resulting in the loss of 20 sailors. Sheffield later sank uh, while being towed to Ascension. How did you and the crew feel about this escalation? This must have hit, hit your task group commander, Sandy Woodward, hard given that he was a former commander of sheffield well let's just let's just talk about the incident first of all because you're right it, it, things started at, at the rush for sure um you know one may through sort of six may is etched on virtually all our memories both both domestically and also in the task the task force what what configured as we first arrived in theater and it, this is all encapsulated extremely well in in Woodward's book, A Hundred Days, and I would, I would, I'm not trying to advertise it, but it is a, a brilliant read of the man who, you know, through his eyes of what he was thinking, what he was doing, how he brought about this amazing endeavor, you know, getting us all the way down there. God knows what else. Um, so the first configuration by the Argentinians was that they got their, they got their 25th of May carrier out and it was closing us from the north. And it had um, Super 8 on guards on it, in our view. Um, we felt that they would be armed with air launch exocets. 
And so that was a big threat to the cat to the task force on day three um, in, in the total exclusion zone. He also had uh, down in the southwest coming from a Navy did a sort of pincer movement, which involved the Belgrano that was fitted with Exocet, um, plus two escorting uh, destroyers and one, one frigate, I think. Um, and the Belgrano, incidentally, and it's worth noting, was able. It was an old um, <laughs> Chicago class or something that the, the, the Americans had sold, sold to the Argentinians. But it was capable of about 32, 33 knots. So there wasn't an awful lot of sea room here, and they could have closed up very quickly. And then there was another group sort of um, bisecting these two groups in the middle. So what we had was a three-pronged pincer, pincer movement closing us. Um, there's another complication that's worth thinking about, is that there were, there were three nuclear submarines submerged off the coast. Um, command of those submarines was exercised from northward direct. So Woodward had, did not have tack on of those, of those submarines. So everything he wanted to do with them, he had to, you know, and, and what, what mission allocation and everything else, it all had to go through northward. It was a case of him asking northward northward getting the clearance and then going from there so you know he he pretty much had his one arm behind side behind his back in this particular instance now if you compound all that and uh, determine that you know we lost track of the 25th of may um for one reason or another the uh the submarine that was on it lost it we had another submarine down to the south on the belgrano that was still in contact and the, the unknown quantity was the third group somewhere bisecting the middle. So uh, if you if you read Sandy's book, you'll see that he, he knew that we were in trouble here. If they all came at us fast and discharged exocets, as he had done in the Gulf, incidentally, um, then I think we could have found ourselves in a lot of difficulty. So he went back to Northwood very quickly, and basically lay out the justification for... Um, sinking the Belgrano, because if we didn't stop one of them, um, we wouldn't be able to concentrate necessarily on the others. Um, and also, we, we didn't know where the others were, even though we were flying hard to look for them. Um, if Reefer Brown was the captain of Conqueror. He was in the trail. It's all outlined in the book. Uh, three torpedoes were fired. And one hit the stem, one the stern. <laughs> the other was uh, ran underneath, I think, and they, they sank, and, and you saw the casualty numbers. So that was the Belgrano sequence. And uh, what we didn't realize at the time was that uh, after that particular sinking, the Argentine Navy went back to port and never reappeared again. Hmm. So we had, we had had a stroke without realizing it, established... Um, uh, a the complete deterrence, and uh, it was a great a great benefit to us very early on. The counter to that, of course, was the next day, um, and I remember that vividly. We all do. We were in a screen on the on the carrier. We were quite a way off the coast in what we thought was quite a good sanctuary. Um, we knew that uh, an exocet, air launched exocet, was a big threat. Um, we didn't, you know, you only know what it might do. You don't know what it actually can do. Um, uh, and all you get with an Exocet launch and an Exocet prosecution, if you're fortunate, you will get a very brief EW interception of its initial detection process. Um, you might, when it before it drops down to its sea-skimming mode, you might just get a couple of sweeps on a radar. Um, and then that's all you get until such time as the seeker head um, you know, lights up, and that lights up when it's about three miles out, four miles out. And if that seeker head locks onto you, that's the first hard indication you've got. Um, you might, if you're lucky, on a on a clear day, see the smoke trail when it's coming towards you. Now, that is, you know, a terrifying moment. I mean, I think for anyone who was sitting in those ships at the time, the notion of an exocet in flight heading anywhere near you and the seeker head just lighting up, that is, that's that's something for making the blood run cold. In this instance, they targeted the Sheffield. They might have targeted someone else. I don't know, but they targeted the Sheffield. Um, uh, and they hit her with one exercise, I think, um, uh, in the in the middle superstructure. She, was, um, she had a lot of aluminium inside. That's the way we built those ships at that stage. 
um, there were fires, there was smoke inhalation, there were sort of you know explosions. Um, the missile itself split up. It was a very clever little missile, but I won't go into detail about it. But you know, the Sheffield was in big trouble. She got hit, um, caught cold. Um, it was a very clear day, and I can remember someone on our bridge reporting smoke from the Sheffield. And I can remember saying back to our navigator, "Do you do you know what it is?" And he said, "Well, I think it must be a torpedo." Ah, but we had had little indications of a Garvey radar, um, so we knew something other than that was going on. Um, we couldn't validate it, so we flew a helicopter over, Woodward did, um, to see a large hole in the side with smoke billowing out of it, and it was quite clearly an Exocet, not a torpedo. Uh, which had been, you know, one of the initial thoughts flying around. So that was the day of the Sheffield. Um, was this a great shock for Sandy Woodward? Um, I think it probably was, but he was not the sort of man who shocked easy. Um, he was a very cool-headed individual, um, analytical, known for being highly intelligent, not the most empathetic chap, and he wouldn't mind me saying that. He wasn't there to be empathetic. But I think he stayed on that night he had a very clear idea about what was happening and what he was going to do with the repercussions. I think we were all surprised, um, really surprised, by um, the lethality of the Exocet and, and, and how and what it could do and how um, uh, a relatively um, good Air Force um, can, could, could deploy something so seriously serious. I do know that back in UK, and presumably worldwide, the, the state of shock um, in the capital was amazing. I mean, I think all the nightclubs shut down and everybody went home because it, it was that sort of visceral, visceral surprise, I think, that uh, shocked everybody. A British warship sunk, wow. That, um, that, was, that was horrible. But for us there, I think once again, it was ghastly. We had friends in Sheffield, we knew. Um, but I think it made us focus even harder. And we knew, we knew then that we were very much in a shooting war and that we were in it for quite a while. Your ship wasn't involved in the Battle of San Carlos, was it? That was when Argentinian aircraft sank Ardent, Antelope, and Coventry. There were two county-class destroyers in, uh, in the fleet. Glamorgan was one, Antrim was the other. And I mentioned to you that, you know, they had the ships were quite heavily manned, 400-plus, and also had these missiles going straight up the middle of the ship. So I think there was always a concern that um, if these ships deployed into Carlos, even though, you know, that actually the, the risk factor of taking a hit and then the risk factor of, of losing a lot of men in one instance could have had a profound effect upon all sorts of aspects of the task force, not least, or, at least on the political leadership and having to deal with it back home. Now, we didn't know that at this stage. I mean, we just had put ships into Carlos. Um, uh, Antrim was in there, so she was the county class. We were deployed on a deception mission, which was to send us down to the south and out to the west and make a lot of bangs and say, I'm here, and God knows what else. Um, so <laughs> that, that was a, a rather interesting mission, but of course we weren't involved in Carlos itself. Um, we were due to be involved. I remember we were lined up to come in as a, as a reserve for Antrim. Antrim got um, hit by a bomb and it nestled somewhere near the magazine. And she had to leave Carlos to you know, go and seek shelter and, uh, and try and effect a repair. And I think <clears throat> that caused the powers, and I've never seen this written down, but I think this is what we thought at the time. It caused the powers to think, well, you know, we could. This could be a showstopper if we lost that many men in one in one hit, um, uh, and therefore we don't want to take the risk again by putting the Morgan in there. So we never went to San Carlos. Um, I knew a lot of, uh, of those men in those ships that were there, and uh, you know, uh, who was in command, ships within them, and everything else. Um, but we got the troops ashore, and that's uh, that's what it was all about. On the 12th of June, at the beginning of June, Glamorgan was detached to, pr to protect shipping in the towing, repair, and logistics area 200 miles away from the islands. Can you describe that, that area? Yeah. Um, 
Woodward had located, we had 127 ships down there, and that's a lot of ships. Um, they weren't all in San Carlos. They weren't all military. Some had been ships taken up from trade and used. One was the Queen Elizabeth. Another one was the Canberra, huge cruise liners. Um, and so he put them into an area called the, the Trala. You'll probably know the, the abbreviation for it. Uh, but it was basically to look after the merchant shipping. We'd been down there from um, day one, and uh, you know, Woodward decided, I think, that it was time to give us a layoff and send us out to the trialers so that we could recover a little bit and um, look after the, the merchant ships. So that's effectively what that task was. I think we did it for about a week, um, patrolling, making sure that there was no Argentine incursion or whatever. But it allowed us to come away from, we've been in defense and action stations and defense watches for about um, however many weeks we'd eaten up, you know, six to seven. And so therefore the opportunity to do that, have a decent bath and all that went with it uh, was invaluable. But that was, that was the nature of the role and what we were doing there. So you returned to the islands on 11 June in support, uh, to support the Royal Marine fighting Royal Marines fighting the Battle of Two Sisters. At 0637 on 12 June 1982, Glamorgan was attacked with an Exocet missile fired from an improvised shore-based launcher. Can you walk us through that event? Well, I think one has to get, again, the context. We had been, as the troops, of course, by this stage, it's very much become a a land land campaign they've yomped their way across from west falklands to east and now they're just approaching the final approaches to stanley there are large number of argentinians in the mountains surrounding stanley uh, from the west and then there's um, all their command and control and general menendez and all his people and other elements of his army down in stanley itself so this was the final push um uh, to take those mountains to take out those Argentinians and to move in on Stanley. And of course, one thing we haven't touched in all of this is that there was, you know, there were time constraints to achieving what we were going to achieve. And one of them was the advent of winter. We had to beat winter if at all possible, having to go through a winter down there in a state of sort of paralysis, akin to say Iraq and Ukraine at the moment um, would not have been helpful. So there was a momentum behind it. Um, So to, support that effort, um, we had been putting ships in every night uh, to south of Stanley <coughs> to uh, conduct a naval gunfire support to support the troops as they, as they took ground. And, um, and we got very good at it. And the ships got good at it as well. Um, we were brought back from the trailer and, and told to, you know, sharpen up our guns again and, and go in. And we went in that night. Um, we had intelligence that there was um, a shore-based Exocet in there um, that had been in place for two or three days, and we'd read ourselves back in. Um, and we duly went in there. And there was an arc that we stayed outside of, um, and we positioned ourselves off the shoreline and started conducting naval gunfire support. We'd done this many days before, many, many times, so it went very successfully. We started round about nine at night, um, carried right the way through to about six in the morning. Uh, and we were supporting specifically um, the Marines who were trying to take two sisters um, and were halfway into the assault. We were, we were, um, we were aimed at uh, helping them. Um, we were on the coast. Um, we, we'd come to the point where we had to withdraw because we used to try and get out from uh, from being so close to the coast, because a couple of weeks before, a few days before, there had been a, a dreadful accident with Sir Galahad, you'll probably know all about it, uh, and ships in Fitzroy, Fitzroy Bay, where they'd been in daylight um, with many uh, army personnel still on them, and they were bombed by Argentine Mirage, and that was the largest loss of life in the war. So to avoid that, we as ships were told that we had to clear by such and such and get back to the safety and the air umbrella of the carrier. So we were in a fairly usual place where we'd been before. Um, We were outside the arc, or so we thought. 
um, and we started conducting our gunfire support. And we reached the end of it, and we should have been away by, I can't remember the exact time, but we should have been away by, let's say, 5.45. The call from the Marines was, you know, that they very much valued what we were doing, and we we didn't have to stay to help them, but the command assessment was that that was important, and the decision was made that we would therefore stay in that position, conduct our gunfire support, um, stay outside the arc, and, um, and get back. Um, and that's truly what we did. Um, there was only one change to, to all of that that we probably weren't aware of. In fact, I don't think many people were aware of it. But where the intelligence said that the Exocet was, wasn't actually, in our view, having done the reconstruction after the event, etc., um, actually where it was. It was in, in another position. Uh, and so uh, the arc itself had shifted just a little even though we had tried to offset for that. So we were heading south. Um, We had to clip the edge of the arc because there was something there called kelp. A lot of kelp is a very, very thick seaweed, and you can't afford to put your ship through it because it'll chew up your umbrella, your propellers, and you won't be able to go any further. Um, And then there was a call from the bridge of a light on the shoreline, a flash, I think we, we'd had a number of flashes on the shoreline um, that, you know, this was just part and parcel of that. We thought it was probably small arms fire. And we continued south, um, at which point the call came from the bridge that we had an incoming radar, incoming radar um, echo. Um, they called it as Exocet straight away. And simultaneously with that, we got an EW hit in the ops room, uh, which was a seat ahead. Um, so this thing was very close. We took the countermeasures, which were to present your stern to this, uh, a particular quadrant, which would avoid the seeker head locking onto you. Um, and we also managed to engage the missile at pretty much the last minute with a CCAP missile, which I think probably affected the warhead um, in some shape or form. Um, we were heavily in the turn at this stage and healing, and that helped us, the uh, the missile didn't access at a certain point in the superstructure that we thought it might, or even the hull. It was just above the hull and clawed along the deck um, and then went through the deck and into the galley below. So we took the hit. We were then into a totally different situation. We still had propulsion, so we, we came down in speed, but we were having then to put a lot of generators into firefighting equipment and everything else. So we took the speed off the ship to do that, we had um, raging fires in, in the back end, obviously. Uh, we had raging fires up in the, uh, in the flight deck area. Um, the large helicopter, the Wessex helicopter, blew up. It cooked off and blew up, killing um, all the people in the, in the office. Um, we had just fallen out from defense watches, um, and so a number of people were attending their breakfast. And, of course, that's when the galley imploded. And, frankly... Um, uh, you know, it was it was carnage, um, and we lost very very sadly 13 people. We then went back to um, a repair ship that we had um, outside, um, close to the carrier, and we, we were alongside that night, getting over the hit because that's a lot of shock for obvious reasons, clearing it up. And um, we were ready to go in again and, and commence overnight firing again, um, but uh, Woodward said no. Um, we're about to take Stanley. We've managed to take the two sisters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you are to go home with HMS Plymouth, who's also been damaged, and get repaired. Um, and so that was the end of our Falklands journey. Why did we survive? I think we survived because we had a damn good ship made of very solid steel. Uh, wasn't much ammunition in Glamorgan, the way they built ships back then. And she was a 60s build. Um, you know, it was pretty rigorous. So we were robust. We were very well worked up. We'd, um, uh, we'd had damage control crews that were well practiced. Um, and they managed to, A, fight the fires, B, control the flooding, which, of course, is the other aspect of it, and C, get rid of some of the missiles that we had in the magazine to lower the risk. Um, and then as we made our way home, um, with a lot of sadness and in a very somber state of mind, we obviously had to recover all our people. 
and we conducted the burial at sea. And um, I don't think, uh, well, I know that that's probably the saddest I've ever, ever felt in my time in the Navy. And there were about ooh, 400 men up there who were sort of skeleton watch. I don't think one of us wasn't very, very cheerful. Yours, your ship was the only ship of three struck by exocytes that survived. And from your retelling of the story, some of the countermeasures you took helped as far as that survival. Was What about the efforts of the crew uh, with respect to damage control? Yeah, it, 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 it's slightly difficult to explain um, to a layman or whatever on quite what damage control in a ship comprises. Uh, in, in large part, it's, it's a firefighting process. You've obviously got magazine sprays and other sprays. Um, you've obviously got um, smoke inhalation stuff. You've obviously got stuff you can wear to stop smoke inhalation. Um, you've got a forward and a midships and an aft in a ship that size, uh, fire and control crews. Those crews have people who can fight the fire with expertise. They have people who can shore up damage with expertise. And they, can, um, they have people who can deal with flooding with expertise. But, of course, um, there, were many, there were many heroes that night, and, and it wasn't a, wasn't a sort of wrong use of the word. There were. Um, one of them was a man who ran the generator setup. Now, that doesn't sound much because he was in control of the switchboards. But what he was able to do was to switch supplies on the switchboards to respective generators that were still working and routing them such that they could provide the power and the pressure and everything else to say aft rather than forward because aft was in trouble. So the, the, the coordination between all the crews, to ensure that, A, the fire was, um, was quelled, and it was, uh, and, but also, and importantly, to ensure that the flooding didn't disable the ship. You'll remember I referred to losing stability um, in Whitby or up in, up in Iceland many years before. Well, the same thing can happen if you hit a fire too hard in a ship and there, there's damage and the water doesn't seep down to the right place. It stays, stays up. Did we ever, and you move from what's known as a state of list, which is controllable, to a state of lull, which isn't controllable, and you can capsize very quickly. Well, we, one story of, of heroism, which is true, um, and we had, a, we had a downpipe that was blocked, and the downpipe, you know, would have allowed the water to seep away from being higher up in the ship. But unfortunately, the passageway was filling up with water to a point where, you know, it was as high as an individual. Um, and they asked who was a good swimmer. And there was a young man of about 18 or 19 who was. And they said, can you, and it is in darkness, remember, you know, uh, with, with healing coming on and everything else. And they asked if he could go down there, quasi underwater, and, um, and you know, clear it, which he did. And... Um, you know, it's moments like that from people like that that make the difference. And I, I think we were, as I say, very, very well worked up. Those damage control crews had been sitting, you know, ready to go in the ship for probably about six to seven weeks. So, you know, they were the fine tip of the spear. And suddenly it was their moment and they grabbed it big time. And, um, and the fact that we were also practiced in it. Uh, made the difference. I've compared, you know, when Moskva um, went through the same situation um, off Ukraine only last year, I think it was, um, you wondered why she had sunk so fast. And someone asked me the question, I said, I'm sure it was a damage control, just simply wasn't good enough um, to, to deal with the situation. And of course, the other exocet hit that we haven't mentioned was an American ship, USS Stark, that you will remember. That was in the Gulf. That took a hit in the superstructure from an air-launched um, Iraqi, I think it was, um, an air-launched missile, and uh, was put out of action but didn't sink. So one thinks, if one put the focus on that, that you'd find their damage control was pretty good as well. Before we conclude this podcast, 
I would just like for you to comment on your auxiliaries. Uh, one of their ships, the Atlantic Conveyor, was also sh sunk by an exocet. Can you comment on their significance and their heroism and the fact they're, that they, they're crewed by civilians and those civilians face some of the same dangers as Navy personnel in a wartime situation? Yeah. Um, let me caveat it all, and I'll come back to that. But caveat it all by saying th this was a this was I think this particular generation's first big war, um, and it was a war. You know, it was it was only two hundred and some. No, not even that. I mean, it was only three or four months or whatever it was. Um, and the push, the national push on the back of a very supportive head of government, Thatcher, and all that went with it, and, and seeing all the levers of power that were put in place, and people's response back at home base in terms of refitting, rebuilding, getting ships out fast, et cetera, et cetera, should we have to go into a second phase through a winter, was you know, quite um, unique, I think. Um, everybody pulled hugely together. Now, part of that, were these ships taken up from trade, who in large part, some of them were manned by merchant ship personnel. And they would have um, um, a naval party on them to advise on where to go, what to do, etc., etc. Well, the Atlantic Conveyor was a particularly um, symbolic ship for obvious reasons, but it was a large ship and it was packed fill, full of replacement kit uh, that we needed for the final push onto Stanley, um, uh, including, I think, you know, um, replacement helicopters and rotor blades and ammunition and everything else. So it was a vital piece of the you know, second tier architecture. Um, and it was halfway down. I can remember the attack because I remember where Conveyor was. Um, and I can remember the bridge reporting that she'd been hit by Exocet. But we were in the screen around Invincible um, and Hermes. There was an Exocet attack. Um, uh, initially, it was believed that it headed for um, Ambuscade, uh, a Type 21, um, and, but it didn't because they got their chaff up in time. So the seeker head you know, cuts right, goes through the chaff, cuts right again. And they cut right again and went and got the Atlantic conveyor. Now, whether the Atlantic conveyor did it in the chat up, I don't know. I suspect not. Um, big ship. Um, I can't remember the tonnage, 20,000 tons, that sort of bracket maybe. Um, and uh, two exosets actually hit her. She must have been a large target. Um, it was smoke more than anything else it did for her, I think. Smoke and fire. Um, uh, they, could have, they could have fought it, but the smoke was so extensive but they couldn't. And they, um, they abandoned ship, and she was a hulk, um, a burned-out hulk at the end uh, with all that kit in her and everything else. Um, uh, and one of the characters of the task force was a man called North, Captain North, who had a, had a wonderful white beard and looked, you know, looked like Captain Pugwash, you know, a, a marvellous character, and he'd been the captain of the conveyor, and he got off but he didn't survive because he got to the life raft, but it was, you know, he wasn't, it wasn't possible and it was too cold. So, yeah, um, these, were, these were excellent people. Um, they were part of this fantastic national push. And um, in some cases, and Captain North is one, he was a merchant ship uh, master. Um, uh, they, gave, uh, they gave the ultimate sacrifice. And uh, looking back, you look back on them with an awful lot of respect. For those of you in the audience who have it, have the opportunity to visit the Falkland Islands. There is a memorial to those who lost their lives on Glamgoran at Hooker's Point. I encourage you to visit it. And sir, I thank you for yeah, telling no, the story. I, I know all about I know yeah, I know all about Hooker's Point and uh, yeah, I can tell you the story. Let's let's share the story. Sure. Um, there are a number of memorials where ships were hit. Um, we had initially a memorial window back in Portsmouth because it was, you know, originally thought that, that would be that would be beneficial to families and everything else, and particularly those who lost their loved ones. And that's still there, and we visit it every year. 
or every five years when we have reunions. Um, it was felt that we needed or wanted, uh, the ship wanted, and we have a very, very, very active association of which I'm very proud to be the president. And um, now that our captain is no longer with us, um, and it was felt that we should have our own memorial um, at Hooker's Point, which is where we thought the Exocet had been fired from. So with private subscription from the ship's company, we um, we purchased a large piece of Welsh granite, Welsh because Glamorgan is a county of Wales. Um, it, it was inscribed, um, and you've seen the inscription, or you can still see it, and it was taken down with a group of Glamorgan people, including the then Captain Barrow, um, Mike Barrow. Um, and it was taken down in a Royal Fleet Auxiliary, and it was then constructed on the Falklands. And it sits there, obviously, to this day. It's looked after by Falkland Islanders, a group of people who are very, very supportive and were supportive in the war. And um, every Remembrance uh, every remembrance Day, there's a service held um, and it's beamed back with the wonders of modern technology now to um, back into this country. Um, it is a it is a very um, moving memorial, and I think it gives an awful lot of strength to Glamorgan families, and particularly Glamorgan families who lost their loved ones. With that, thank you very much, sir. This is Preble Hall. <laughs>